G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-oriented, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at reedgoosens.com. And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. The thing that folks have to do before they start presenting to their network is to develop some sort of, of um, to, to accomplish what in the book, what I call the prerequisites. And the book talks about prerequisites of real, of, for raising private capital, things like having your business plan together, knowing your goals about where you want to go, because I think that's people forget real estate, real estate investing is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Welcome to investing in the U S a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the U S market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the U.S., how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show.
Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with an absolute legend and someone who I've been wanting to interview for quite some time now. I'm talking about Mr. Matt Faircloth. Matt is the co-founder and president of Derusa Group, which specializes in buying and renovating dilapidated properties. Matt started his investing career way back in 2004 with his lovely wife, Liz, and just a $40,000 loan. Since then, they've gone on to complete over $30 million in real estate transactions involving private capital, including fixing and flipping houses, single-family home rentals, mixed-use buildings, apartment buildings, office buildings, the list goes on, and even tax liens. But the most important thing is that Matt is also a top-selling author on Amazon, and his recent book is called Raising Private Capital, Building Your Real Estate Empire Using Other People's Money. But Matt is also a huge contributor to Bigger Pockets website, and he has his own weekly YouTube channel where she, he shares his insider tips and tricks about building a real estate empire. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show today to share his incredible ins- insight and experience of what he does. But enough out of me, let's get him out here. G'day, Matt. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? I'm great, Reed. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Mate, well, it's been a I saw you a month ago in New York yeah. City, where I think you actually gave me a version of coronavirus. And I I, I, I heard I, I heard through the grapevine through Eric Cabrell that you had a cold leading up into Podmax and that I did. You'd, sp- you'd spread it throughout the throughout the group. And I came back from that trip going, oh, I'm a bit sick. <laughs> and I don't know if it's Corona, but I was just, I'm just giving you a little yeah, You're bit a bit strong strapping lad, Reed. You, you probably, <laughs> you just shrugged that. That shrug Corona was like a little bit of dandruff on your shoulder and you just went like that, you know, right. You just, you know, you, if you had coronavirus, you would just have a little bit of orange juice and you would be fine. Oh uh, yeah. Just, 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 bounce, just take just like a Zycam and it would be gone. Straight off the floor. Straight That's off the floor. It. Exactly. Yeah, right. But mate, it was good to see you and for those people who who don't know you but Matt you and I met many years ago at the Trenton train station I was reminiscing I about this to you when I was, saw you in Trenton for Podmax mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even remember when that was it would have been what 2013 12, yeah. 13, yeah 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 2013 2014 somewhere in there we, we met at a McDonald's in the Trenton train station yeah uh, got connected by Joe Fairless um in, in that and uh shared a lot of great ideas and and you and I were both trying to build a bigger business in the multifamily space and um you know had, had made a reasonable name for ourselves and both looking to go and it was just a great conversation then and I'm, I'm glad we stayed in contact from there it was hard to pin you down to get on this show because I know I've been pinging you for a little while. But it wasn't until we kept harassing you to get on the show, but now now we're here. <laughs> so without further ado, I always ask this question. Rewind the clock. Tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Oh, boy. Um, okay, so aside from... Uh, you know, like little onesie twosie stuff, like mom and dad, give me a dollar for cutting the grass or something like that. Um, the, the first like real that I can think of... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, money-making activity that I had on a regular basis was when I was a bag boy at, at Eddie's supermarket in Baltimore over on Roland Avenue, right? Just in, in like a, in like a swanky neighborhood. Um, and I, I would just bag groceries every day after school and, um, and, and go and, you know, just had a job, you know, work from like four till seven every day, help, help the folks out to the car with the bags and try and talk real nice to them. So they give you a tip and everything like that. And, um, learned a lot about customer service. Um, learned a lot about just the value of just, you know, just kind of like hard work. And and I was a, you know, blue collar kid, man, just, just bagging groceries for a, for a, for a check. And, and it was back then it was big money to a kid, you know, 15, 16 year old kid. I was making, making a hundred bucks a week or something like that. So I thought I was in, in heaven. Um, and, and I, and I learned uh, a solid work ethic at that point. So that was the first, um, 
work dollar that I earned, if that's what you're asking. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Yeah. I, I think yeah. the, the, the idea behind that question is to try and understand how you were brought up, you know, what's, what, how do you value a dollar? So, so maybe talk to us a little bit about the journey of, of your upbringing and, and really your first part of your life before you got involved in the real estate empire and creating your own business and being an entrepreneur. What was pre-Matt Faircloth look like <laughs> before we got, came down this road of, of trying I to build I drank the bug before I drank the entrepreneur <laughs> Kool-Aid. Before, before you started building something from nothing. What was Well, it? it's funny. You could really ask the question is, what did you do before you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Yeah, you know, like because <laughs> that's what that's what, everybody's story. Their life changed when they were rich dad poor dad. It changed like, oh my god, I was this. You know, I was it could be like I was a bag boy at a grocery store, or I was a landscaper, or whatever. I rich dad poor dad. I completely changed my life. And decided to get in real estate. Um, but um, I was a. Uh, it's a funny story. I was a I, growing up. I was good at math and science, and people said, hey you're good at math and science, so you should become an engineer. And I, like any other kid, just trusted adults and said, oh, you know, right. I, I, bro, I know so many successful real estate investors that were engineers. By the way, I could probably name 10 right now that have an engine <laughs> of, of, of investors, men and women that have engineering degrees. So I, some, in some ways, I think that it's actually just that analytical mind that it takes to be successful in real estate investing. But anyway, I got into, I went to school at Virginia Tech, just happened to be wearing their jacket GT, here. Love it. Love right? it. Go Hokies. Um, and I, um, I got my degree and realized about halfway through that I didn't want to be an engineer. That like the, like the engineer job kind of stunk, man. I was like, I don't want to sit at a desk and like crunch numbers all day and be in this little, you know, be Dilbert. You know, I don't want to be that guy. So, right. <laughs> So I, I got a job in sales, um, which was a total blessing. I found a job in sales that was laid out for engineers. But the reason why they wanted engineers is because you were selling, we were selling high technical product to engineers. Most of your clients were engineers on the other side of the table. So you were selling to Dilbert, but you need to know how to talk to him, right? And how to sell in technical terms. And so they wanted people that were outgoing, but were techie, right? So I ended up taking this job with Ingersoll Rand. Um, IR uh, selling um, selling compressed air machinery. So I sold this industrial equipment, these big loud machines um, that you had to wear earplugs around that went in factories and sold for anywhere between like 15 grand all the way up to a half million bucks. Uh, sold that machinery for seven years. Um, but in, in, in there, met my girlfriend, now wife, who got me to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and ah, changed, my, changed my life forever. Yeah, Liz, she got, she, Liz, Liz is the one. Liz she is the did one. it. Holy Liz, God. I take no credit. I probably still be working for Ingersoll Rand, making good money, but hating my life. Um, had it not been for my lovely wife who got me to read Rich Dad Poor Dad and absolutely changed everything. Right. Well, geez, that story sounds so familiar. Like the, my, I'm a structural engineer. That was what I went to school for. That's what awesome. I moved to the United States for. I'm not smart enough for that. I was an, I was an industrial engineer. Industrial engineer. Got <laughs> yeah. it. Okay. Well, mate, yeah. it's, it's all, but you're, you're correct. I know I've interviewed 200 episodes i've probably done at least 10 or 12 a dozen episodes where people are straight up straight out of engineering and it's it's crazy i can make the list edgy cushman michael blanc yep. all these guys all background engineering i guess i kick yes. neil bawa a lot of these guys yep. are either data it engineers yep. uh more data driven analyst driven professions and i'm not saying that's what's required i just think it's an interesting correlation it is. it is. Yeah. And I think it's, it, it's more going through the fact is that you've got to be cool with numbers, right? Yep. You, you, know, you can be successful in these businesses without the numbers background, like someone like Joe Fairless, who has the forward of your book, right? He is more of a marketing background. But yep. 
to to get started, you've got to be com- you've got to be somewhat comfortable with numbers. So, but that's um. But then so she she so Liz introduced you to Rich Dad Porter. You're hating your job, but you know doing it anyway. What was that jumping off point? Because I said 2004 is when you got started. Is that when you said, "Hey, mate, to your boss, see you later." Uh, I'm out of here. Right. Um, That's how I bought my first rental. I lived in, I, it was actually 03, but I lived in, I lived in a single family home that I owned. I had bought, I sold an enormous air compressor system to Minute Maid Orange Juice. And Minute Maid Orange Juice had this enormous factory up in Jersey. I sold them a huge compressor system. My check was 10 grand on that sale, my commission check. And at 26 years old, you know, there's, there's a million ways you could blow 10 grand at 26. Um, and so I was like, you know, let me not blow this. This is a life changer. This at back then that was life changing money. So I put that in a savings account and like, listen, I'm going to put that over here. I'm not going to, I'm going to just forget about it and forget it exists. And then fast forward, Liz got me to reach that poor dad and the landlord, the, the property I lived in, the landlord was, um, was going to be selling the property and terminated our lease. I didn't want to buy that property that we were living in. So I found another one. And I bought a single family home, had two buddies move in with me. Um, and they, the rent that they paid covered the mortgage. So that was my first rental. Um, but then what got me full time was when Liz and I got married, we agreed that I would quit my job and um, we would live off of her salary. So I had a, you know, she's my sugar mama. So we, we lived off her salary um, while, the, uh, while I built our business. Interesting. What, and what was her background before she got into real estate? She's a background in social work. Um, mm. So she got, she got again, like me. Well, that, that lucrative social work, you know, paycheck, right? Oh, yeah. It's making it rain, you know, <laughs> right, right, right. You know, man, printing all that paper with social work. She got into corporate social work, though. She actually mm. did pretty well. She was doing, again, like me, realized, you know, maybe I don't want to do that, what everybody in my stream is doing. Maybe I don't want to go do what they're doing. Maybe I want to try something a little different. So she took the social work training and got into a career. Um, she actually became like an HR sales rep. So she hmm. sold a product for analyzing and, and finding the right people for positions, kind of like the Myers-Briggs and stuff like that. It's called the predictive index. Mm-hmm. Um, so she did very, very well selling that. I mean, you know, it did well enough. I mean, like, you know, I'm better than she would have as a social worker. Um, but she did, she did, uh, she did that and it was admirable. She loved it. Um, but, uh, but she did well enough to cover our, our nut and we lived way below our means enough and made, made enough to get by. Um, and this, and this is, this is pre kids and all that sort of stuff. Right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Pre I think, I think, but, but the, the couple of key benefits out of that is that, you had you had a, a partner which you chose well, right? You chose extremely well that both people were on the same page. Because I'm I know a lot up. of you, yeah. you, 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 you're batting, mate. They say batting out of your leg, right? <laughs> <laughs> but 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 it's I don't I don't I joke in the way that it's important to have a partner or a spouse who's on the same page yes. because if you're trying to do this business, it's it's going to take some faith, you know, some some mm-hmm. leap of faith, some commitment from one other person who may not know the ins and outs of what you're trying to do and read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and all that sort of stuff. But to have them on board is such a, the battle's half won, right? Because then yeah, you can man. just go and build. And build may take a year, three, 10, 15 years, whatever it takes, but you've got that communication uh, together, which is so important. I read, I don't know any real estate investors whose spouse is not, I, there's two, two different equations. Successful real estate investors, spouses either want nothing to do with it, Mm-hmm. And they're just like, I'm going to go do my thing. I'm going to go over here and do what I do. And I'll talk to you about how your day was at dinner. Or 
there are spouses that are fully engaged, that are supportive, and maybe in some way active in the business. My wife's, my wife's as active in our business, not like on top of it. She's more of an advisor, special projects, that kind of thing. But I know no one that's successful mm-hmm. in this business whose spouse is either skeptical of real estate investing or straight up resistive to real estate investing. Like, Hey, we should be doing this or even like skeptical, like, "Eh, I don't know. That's, that's not that safe. You should go get a job. You know, if your spouse is not at least supportive of it from an emotional standpoint, you're done. Yes. And and don't get me, and don't get me wrong. Like I, I put from a personal point of view for, for many years, my, my wife, um, didn't kind of get it and didn't get the entrepreneurial bug, but it took a little bit of coaxing. And and not everyone who listened to this show, not everyone's going to be in a, in a position where they have the the partner that can just be boom. Yeah, no. I get I get it, but it takes time. But it's it, what I guess we're trying to say is it's important to have your home base supportive because it, that support is going to help you through those dark times. Because obviously you've created something over the last twenty years that has taken a lot of hard work, and there's probably mm-hmm. been some dark days. So. Yeah, um, <laughs> there were times that my wife was the only one that I had. She's my therapist, you know, like right. she was the one that she was the shoulder I cried on or whatever mm-hmm. um, about the business. Because in, in dark days, the last thing you need is to come home and have a spouse is like, I told you so, you know, <laughs> you know right? <laughs> you know, I told you this wasn't going to work. Yeah, like, you need yeah. something yeah, you could do it. Get back out there. Because yeah. like Liz could have talked me into quitting a million times over the last years, over the many, many years that we've been in, the, the, you know, almost two decades we've been in this business. Um, but she didn't. She dusted me off and shook me off and 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 uh, got me to try. I'm waving to her right there, um, and uh, she got me to she got me to try again and then again and then again and then again, um, and that and when I was down, if I didn't have that, uh, you know, I, I don't know what I would have done because your right. spouse in some ways is there to watch your six, to watch back. You and, know? and, and I, uh, someone said to me, a wise friend of mine. Um, and this goes a little bit. Um, we're getting a bit philosophical. We'll get into the nuts and bolts in a second. Go but, for it, man. But but the the. The definition of it's all great to be attracted to them, and 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 this goes either way. It doesn't it's not just one way, but to be attracted to, to your partner, to to love their friends, to love their family. But the real litmus test is when when your chips are down, and your partner can shield you from the world. That is the ultimate litmus test. And I thought that gives me shivers when I talk about that. But I was like thinking about my personal life. I was like, yeah, Erica would be there for me and have me when my chips are down. And I think that's a really in my mind, my good litmus test for that. And I don't know what you think about that. Um, I, I, I think that at the end of the day, um, it really goes back to, I mean, just the, I think I'll even go, I'll, I'll get more philosophical, right? And I'll, 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 I'll trump you philosophically. There's something to the vows that we say when we get married, right? Sure. That for better, for worse, for sickness and in health, for, for broker, for poor, for richer, for poor, everything, right? You're really full on committing to that person. It's not like only when the sun is shining or mm. only when, you know, you, you want when I, be. when I agree with you or only yeah. when you want to watch the show that I want to watch or only when you're nice to me, am I going to be nice to you? It is full on committed. And even on my good days, on my bad days and good times and bad, all of it, I commit, I promise mm. I will be there. Mm. Um, and, and that and even day, even on in like what they're not saying is even on days that you don't want to be there, that you're going to do it anyway. Cause you said you would. Right. Um, and so that's what it's all about to me. Um, and, uh, and that just staying committed to your partner, you know, all the way through. And, and I mean, I can't say that I've done that a hundred percent of the time. I mean, Liz and I have our ups and downs, sure. um, as any married couple does, yes. but, but we remember during bad times, the first thing we do is tighten up together, mm. you know, um, that, that, that when, that when time, when times get a little questionable, the first thing we do is go to each other to strengthen up our, to, so we can tighten up so that we can step stronger for the world. 
And I think, that, as you just mentioned, it takes work, right? Working yeah, on yeah. yourself, working on the other person, understanding what you're hearing them. You know, sometimes we all get into this uh, headspace of, I need you to do this because that makes me happy. And it's like, hang on, yeah. you don't need that person to do anything. You need to sort your own shit it's out. Like, yeah, you go first. You take care of me first, then I'll take yeah. care of you. Right. You know? it, but it's give also- Give me what I need and then I'll, retru- I'll reciprocate by giving you what you need. No, you got to go first. You got to give go your first. spouse what they need first. Then uh, they can- or, right. or look, look into yourself and know that you don't have to hang your bag or peg, peg your hat on them and their decisions and their choices that they make to make you happy. Yes. You know, you've, you've got, you have to be yes. accepting of the person who- who who, who, who they are what they are and they've got to accept them for who they are and you've got to work at it together. It's a team sport and it's not going to just be, you know, my wife doesn't look or uh, do things like I do and I can't criticize her for it because it's, it's who she is, right? And, and you've, got to, you've got to understand that and so work on it together and that's the working part that really has got to come together as a team to make sure you're, you're, you're both rowing in the same yeah. bloody direction. I get, I get it. And, and perhaps this is one more factor. Perhaps mm-hmm. this is why your wife felt, you know, came on board. Cause you said she was a little, maybe I was skeptical or just didn't get it or whatever at first when you first start real estate investing. If your spouse is passionate or committed or moving in a direction, you better go with them. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to keep them, because, um, at the end of the day, I've seen a lot of couples grow apart where like they were really tight at one point in their twenties. And then they, one went this way, the other went that way. I mean, I've seen like, you know, the yep. husband get really into triathlons or whatever. And the wife doesn't want to even work out. Yep. They grow apart. The husband gets into triathlons and meets a triathlete community and meets all kinds of new people. And they're going in the direction he wants to go and maybe ends up going that way without his wife. So I think that if, if your spouse, if, if you are going in one direction, it's important to try and bring your spouse along with you so that they can stay aligned with you on your passions because life changes we start more going in different directions and if you're not growing together you're growing apart and so it's mm-hmm. very important to find ways to grow with your spouse um and, and to, yeah. to that i like i know from my, my personal point of view erica is so much more emotionally intelligent than i am you know just being <laughs> in a, in my, so so things that i bring to the table she brings to the table in spades as well and and recognizing that is super important for my, both myself but also for the relationship and that's how you can be more aligned understanding where those values are being brought to the table from individuals to make sure you are stroking in that right direction. And we won't get too more into this because this is not the, uh, the Dr. I love it. Hour. No, no, it's good. <laughs> it's all good fighter read. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. We can bring it back in. Well, mate, no, it, 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 it's super important because the reason we can, we can now pivot to sure. what you do, which is raising capital, I also think that having a true home. I'm not a real estate marriage counselor. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> yeah, it, but, right. but it also helps. Like when I meet you, right, I can see that Matt Faircloth it comes from a loving family, right? Mm-hmm. Has a has support of the, the your loved one, and yep. that helps me make sure that okay, well, I'm going to want to invest with Matt because he knows that, and, and that actually has a residual impact on how you raise capital. So, I've got your book here, which is the new book, raising capital, raising private capital, how oh, to bless. build. Thank you how to build a real estate empire using other people's money. Do you want to talk about how you got, how you started, where the idea came from this book? Because it's probably been a long time coming because this was only released a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago. About a year and a half ago. Yeah, but it's already an Amazon bestseller. Right, but you've been in the biz for 20 years, man. So Mm -hmm. so what took you so long to write this? (laughs) I didn't didn't really get on, I I just kind of like hunkered down and did my thing um, as a real estate investor. I didn't get, I, I didn't find a microphone um, 
to, to talk into about real estate investing until recently. And to be honest, like the advent of like podcasting and web stuff and things like biggerpockets.com. When I got started in real estate, there was nothing like that. There was local RIA clubs. Um, and and I, there was the local RIA clubs and then there was these knucklehead national gurus that would come and talk to the RIA club about how you had to pay them, you pay them five grand to, for them to whisper the secret of real estate in your ear, right? That's all there was. Um, and so I worked my way around the RIA clubs and I started running one and stuff like that. I tried to get away. I tried to run my RIA club that I ran. We didn't really want the gurus. We just like, I'd rather have, we had the mayor of Trenton and the mayor of Camden, New Jersey, come and speak to the RIA group. That was a way better meeting than the guru guy. Anyway, right. that's about as far as I got. And then, you know, advent of online stuff started happening. And, and so I started writing articles for bigger pockets. Um, all the while we have been raising money for larger and larger deals just because it seemed like the logical thing to do. And a lot of people were coming to us wanting to raise, wanting to get in on deals. It's like, okay, cool. Yeah, I got deals you can do. And so we started structuring private money all the while we were becoming more and more in, you know, infiltrated with bigger pockets and more and more aligned with, with their goals and where they were going and became more of a trusted advisor uh, with them. And uh, they were looking for more books. I had a conference call with them. I pitched them on three books. Um, and this is the one they jumped on. What was the other you know? two? Uh, what were the other two? Sure, I'll tell you. Uh, I wanted to do a book uh, of landlord stories because landlords have the craziest stories you've ever heard in your entire life. Um, and that, I mean, I've, I've got so many hysterical, like the stuff that'll either have you in tears or will have you rolling around on the ground laughing um, that have happened to me directly or stuff that like, that I've heard other landlords tell stories of, but I wanted to go to the bigger pockets community and assemble either hysterical or cheer, like, like a chicken soup for the landlord soul kind of book. Mm -hmm. Um, but of, of their, of, of their communities telling stories, you know, for the, for the audience. Right. Um, bigger pockets is more of a how to organization. They're not really a anecdotal organization. I get it. So they turn that down. Um, the next book is one that Liz and I are going to be working on, which is investing with your spouse. Um, and that, and, uh, and that, so that's, that's the next book we're working on. Um, and then the third one was this was raising private capital because something that we knew a lot about bigger pockets really needed a private investment book on, on how to get people to invest with you. Um, and they, they didn't have a, I mean, Brandon's, um, low to no money down book talks a lot about private money, but more in the terms of seller financing. Um, he doesn't talk as much about, he touches on private notes and stuff like that, but it's not a how to raise money for private, for real estate deals. That's yeah. what my book was. Um, and it was something that was right in the wheelhouse of what I had done. And it was so many stories around it. So I was able to weave together a book that told so many like, well, this investor, it's all true stories. This investor approached us and said this, and we had this deal. So this is how we lined it up. <laughs> so there's very few hypothetical stories in the book. Almost everything is, is true, um, true stories that happen to us. And I'm, I'm able to educate through real stories in the book. Awesome. Well, I think that's, let's get into the nuts and bolts of it because I want sure. to know a little bit more about what your best advice is for people who are out <laughs> there trying to start to raise capital. Like everyone's talking about it. Everyone wants to raise money because at the end of the day, the access to capital is really important in order to grow your business. So what is sort of the first thing people need to think about when they're, they're gonna gonna go down and start knocking on people's doors and say, hey, uncle or dad <laughs> or or hey, do you wanna do you wanna invest in my deal that I've got going? I don't recommend that you go door to door <laughs> <laughs> selling realists. Wouldn't it be incredible? Like a door to door salesman with like a briefcase and a hi, you wanna like, like something like hi, you wanna buy a vacuum? No, no, hi, you wanna invest in real estate. Um 
No, um, I the, the thing that folks have to do before they start presenting to their network is to develop some sort of, of um, to, to accomplish what in the book, what I call the prerequisites. And the book talks about prerequisites of real, of, for raising private capital, things like having your business plan together, knowing your goals about where you want to go. Because I think that's, people forget, Real estate, real estate investing is not a sprint. It's a marathon. I mean, even on short-term private loans and everything like that, because if you play your cards right on a short-term private loan, as soon as you give your investor their money back, they're going to say, that's great. How can I give it back to you? Mm. You know, I want to do that again and again and again and again and again and again, right? So anyway, um, I, uh, I, I, I believe that having your goals together, having your, um, you know, your, your track, a track record of some sort, and if you're just getting started, that's okay. I don't believe that your very first deal should be one with other people's money. If you're going to do a deal, find a way to do it with your own deal. If you're going to use other people's money, try immediate family, try your own credit to borrow against your own credit to get into a deal. Um, try partnerships, strategic alliances, something, or even just align yourself with a larger firm like, like mine or Reed's firm. Um, that, that's doing bigger deals and find a way to add value in some way. Um, but, you know, find a way to be able to tell that private investor, hey, listen, I'm not just, I didn't just read a book or take a seminar on real estate investing and I want to invest. I did all that. And now I did these deals. I was on Reed Goosen's team and I helped them find an apartment building or me and my aunt Sally got together and we bought this four unit and I renovated it and I sold it. And this is what we made. And this is what I learned, you know, um, so be able to talk about something you've done in the past. Uh, I think all those things are required. Um, and the book talks deeper about prerequisites in general, but I believe there are true prerequisites to raising money that people have to do before you can really be successful at it. And, and talk a little bit about the business plan. What, what are you saying when a business plan, you come up with it? Is just this idea of, I want to start raising money for my real estate business, but I have no target out there of what I want to go buy? Or, or, or is it more of a specific case by case? I found a deal. Now I'm going to go out and start, you know, looking for, for other investors who want to get involved. No, it's a matter of, I think the business plan is like, what is, what kind of real estate do you want to get yourself into? What is your acquisition strategy? What's your management strategy? Because if somebody approached me wanting me to invest with them and they're like, you know, Hey Matt, I'd like to you know, borrow some money or have you invest with me as equity to invest in real estate. I'm like, okay, great. Tell me what kind of real estate you want to do. Like, oh, any real estate, anything. I'll invest in shopping centers with your money. I'll put your money into apartment buildings. I'll put your money into a single family home fix and flip. I'll borrow it from you at a rate of return and then give it back to you when the property sells. Um, maybe I'll do a development deal. Maybe I'll buy some land. Maybe I'll buy a shopping center. I'd go running for the hills, man. What are you kidding me? You know, um, I, I would want to see a business plan. I think people want to see this. It says that, I am going to invest in apartment buildings. I'm going to do this many in a year. This is my management strategy. This is who's going to help me. This is my team. This is the mortgage broker I've already talked to um, in that. So I think that having a well thought out directional plan for your business, not for, not for each deal, but for the business as a whole, I'm going to do a bunch of fix and flips. This is how it's going to work. I'm going to buy a bunch of burr strategy rentals. This is what that's going to look like, whatever it may look like. Um, but it can't be shotgun approach about just, I'm going to go and invest in real estate and whatever lands, I'm just going to just be a Venus flytrap and whatever lands in here, I'm going to eat. You can't do that. Um, I don't think you're going to get very far as an investor uh, if that's what you want to do. No, I think that's super, it's important, right? It's about a pitch deck, having the proper pitch deck to go out and start pitching investors. But also, once you have that pitch deck set up, what are you, what, who are you approaching? Because you're talking here about chapter four, the cash provider. Do you want to talk a little bit about who, who's actually going to bring capital to the table in and around yeah. your 
your sphere? Because a lot of people are thinking, probably scratching their head, going, where the hell do I even start? Yeah. Um, you know, when, when come, trying to go find equity. Yeah, right. Um, well, the book talks about like their, their um, equity uh, or even just, just law. And I recommend everybody starts with private loans that, that, you know, but private loans is way easier in, you know, in and out kind of beginning thing. If you get into the kind of deals like you and I are doing read, then yeah, you need equity. But, um, but I'd, I would start on the small side of, of uh, loans and then work your way up unless you're working for a larger outfit. Um, now, equity or loans or just real estate, let's just call it like cash, um, kind of hides itself in a couple of different ways. And that is actual cash um, or that's, you know, real estate equity that's that, that a cash provider may have in their home and not, not realizing they could unlock it, but you as an investor can teach them how to do that. Um, or as in their retirement account, three different sources of cash um, of, of real estate potential, you know, capital to be injected into a deal. So my book, there's a whole chapter in the book called yeah. the sources of capital. Yeah, no, no it, it's super important to understand where to go to, because if you don't have those understandings, you're going to go out there to your point before about shotgun. Like who, who's got money? Where's the money at? And I like right. what you said, like we said, before, private loans is really important to get started, not equity. And the difference between private loans and equity is that the private loan is an individual who has the first lien against the property. Yep. And you are then you're building a relationship with that person. You're going to go execute, or maybe it's a small fix and flip, maybe it's a four unit. Um, but you're actually going and, and ma making putting your money where your mouth is, making sure yeah. you're true to your word and doing the deal. There's a lot Equ of reasons why. Sorry, there's a lot of reasons why yeah. why loans are important to start with. Number one, they they typically got a very shorter beginning, middle, and an end, so you can kind of like you know date till you get married with your investor. Um, additionally, loans don't trigger any type of SEC trigger uh, mm -hmm. as long as you're not raising a pool of debt putting that debt into an LLC and then borrowing money from the LLC. If you're borrowing money from somebody individually, and this is something that gets misconstrued sometimes, that is not a security. You, this, it's not something the SEC regulates. And so you don't have to worry about the, the next tranche of complexity, which you and, I, you and I read have to deal with on a daily basis, which is you know heavier lawyer involvement and SEC involvement, right? Um, as a loan, that's not triggered. And so it's a, it's a way more basic transaction, but you can actually make a lot more money because you own all the upside in the loan. Right. In equity, the investor typically has a ride along with you. So, so in that pitch deck, are you outlining your terms and conditions that you would offer to someone um, in terms of writing this loan? Or do you have any recommendations of what type of documentation you need to use when you're going to try and structure these private loans? Every deal is a little different. So I typically don't put together a business plan or a, um, like, I, I don't recommend that people, and we're beyond this. Our website has a lot of this out there. We've got a lot of the, um, a lot of the data done and everything like that for our pitches. But I'm saying for people that are just getting going, um, I would talk about like maybe a, a, a sample deal to say, mm -hmm. hey, listen, this is a hypothetical deal that we've seen that you might want to consider. Um, in that, but I don't, the business plan should not say we're going to borrow money from everyone at 7% because every deal is a little bit different. Like, um, we've done deals that, uh, that required a little higher interest because it was perce higher perceived risk for the investor or for the lender. There's been deals where I gave the lender a small chunk of the upside and profit on like, so, okay, I'm going to pay you X amount of rate of return on your money. Plus if the deal sells for above this number, I'm going to cut you in and give you a little extra bonus on top of your loan payment. I'm going to give you a percent, a percentage of our profit, like a J, it's called a joint venture. Yep. Um, so you can structure that. So it really depends on the deal. Um, read on, on, on how you're going to set it up. Yeah, no, I completely agree. What are the, um, now going into the biggest stuff, you know, the, the private equities type of, type of world, 
does your book cover much of that side of it? You you you, you mentioned that you and I and we do do this. We've spoken with mm-hmm. more about the SEC stuff. Do you yep. talk a little bit about in the book about you know putting your big boy pants on and, and raising private equity? <laughs> <laughs> it does. Yeah, we talk all about that. We talk about accredited investors. What a you know, basic like stuff that you and I would consider basic. But we, I think you and I take a lot of the lingo that you and I use on a regular basis as we take it for granted that a lot of people don't know what it is. So like, you know, what's preferred return mean? You know, mm-hmm. um, what is a pref? So that's in the book. Um, you know, I don't get into, because I think that, that up until now, the, the you know, the, the 70-30 split plus a pref or the 80-20 split plus a pref has been what people have done. But I think that after Corona crazy, um, I think that, that, that the equity world is going to change a little bit. And so I don't talk about, I'm grateful that I didn't, I don't talk about how to structure deals. I don't go that micro. Um, I talk about what you got to do to do it. You have to have lawyers in place. You have to have these assets. This, these are the legal forms you need because that's not going to change. But equity splits on, on what you give investors and what you keep for yourself. Um, I don't get into because it's deal specific. I do talk about structuring deals based on what returns your investors think they need to make. So again, if an 80-20 split press or pref is what gets your investors to where you think they need to be, then that's fine. If you can keep more for yourself, great. I think we're moving towards a world right now with Corona crazy that investors are going to be okay on less equity, but with more, um, like give me more capital preservation, give me more shelter, give me more um, tax advantages, um, give me a ton less risk, you know, and, and I'll, and I'll take it in exchange for, for, you know, maybe not as much upside. Speaking of coronavirus, we're recording here of April 2nd. I don't know when this podcast will go out, but give me your two cents on what the crystal ball holds and maybe what's going on over in New Jersey these days. You're obviously at home trying to bunker down and stay safe, but, but what about, what are you seeing in the, in the real estate world right now? Yeah, man. It, well, we're not in, we're, we're not at the, 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 the center of it, but I mean, I can see the center from where I'm standing, you know, I'm, it's, you know, New York city is just absolutely, I mean, in, in an, it's absolute infirmary up there. You know, I mean, there's a lot of folks that are ill um, and we keep that area in our thoughts and stuff like that. We're not too far from it, but we're close enough. Um, so what we're seeing, I mean, here's what I'm seeing like right now on, in, the, in the real estate world today, April 2nd is the entire world's on pause. Mm. Um, I feel like it, and in some ways read, it kind of feels like a dream in some ways. Cause I feel like somebody just kind of hit the pause button on a lot of things that matter, including like, you know, mortgages and rent payments and stuff like that, you know, like I'm trying to figure out how this whole thing is going to play. Um, but I'm not seeing anywhere near the deal velocity that we used to. Um, and, and, and nor, and, and, and maybe you're not either. Um, because it's just, there's too many unknowns right now. Um, the, the lending world has gotten really weird. Like Fannie and Freddie just added a whole percent to what their rates were. Um, their escrows have, have gone like way, way up and it's pushed the IRR way, way down on deals that you use today's loan terms under. Um, and that, so we're under contract on a few things and on a, a I got a deal in South Carolina we're under contract on and we're going to have to push a little bit because at the push, end of the day, push the, the closing. Yeah, because I I need to see what their rent collections numbers are going to look like. And, and to be honest, I can't get the debt I wanted to get anymore. Mm. You know, so I need to see the debt markets open back up. Um, I when do think you think re- that will happen? Like, because that's the probably the biggest thing right now. And just sorry to cut you off. The, sure. The, debt, the, the, the pause in the debt market is going to cause a lot of buyers. I think there's going to be a lot of buying opportunity first and foremost. Oh yeah. Um, but 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 when the debt isn't there. You either have got to have the money or cash to buy it, you know, and refinance later when the debt comes back, 
or you just got to wait. So, so what, what are you seeing? Where do you think, when's it all going to come back? Like we're sitting here in April, no one has a crystal ball, but it seems like we're sitting on our hands right now. We know as a real estate investor, we've been talking about this recession for the last bloody 12 years, it's finally going to be here and we're just, we're salivating, but we can't do anything because the markets are frozen up. So, so what do you do? And I was around during the last recession. I invested during the last recession, man. People got to be careful what they wish for, mm. you know? Um, people are like, oh, the last recession, I'm going to yeah. gobble up all this real estate, you know, or the next recession is going to come and property prices are going to dip like they did in 2008, 2009. People don't realize, man, the reason why, why things fell off the grid like that is because you couldn't get a loan back then. Right. You know, like the banks weren't just printing money like they are right now. I mean, getting a loan is so ridiculously easy or it was anyway, I'm talking about now, like pre-corona, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but the, the last like five, six years has been ridiculously easy to get a loan. Whereas I can remember days like the kind of were like it kind of felt like it did in this moment where if you had a deal, the bank might say, ah, listen, we're just not, you know, or our rates are going to look like a percent or two higher than your deal is going to make sense or whatever. Um and just the banks were kind of sitting on their hands. That happened a lot in 2008, 2009. I think we're going to see a lot more uh, lending terms change. From what I hear from people I respect, that um, the uh, that, that Fannie and Freddie might not come off of their escrow requirements right away. Like Fannie and Freddie, as you know right now, are asking for 18 months worth of payments held in escrow, um, and and a year worth of intra- worth of real estate taxes and insurance held in escrow. Right? That's a lot. That changes yep. your eye. You got to raise all that in capital and in, in equity. Yeah, and that and that could cause you to raise another five percent of your of your deal value oh, in equity just to cover all those escrows. Jeez, right. yeah. So I don't know if those things are going to go away. If they don't, if Fannie and Freddie decides to be a little more conservative for a while, uh, that's going to drive cap rates way up because that means and that's not and that's not immediate like oh hey we all get to make more money because cap rates went up. You gotta, it's, it's two sides of the coin, right? At the end of the day, if cap rates go up, then, you know, then, then but lending costs goes up too. Mm-hmm. Our yield spread still gets pushed, right? Um, it's yet to be seen if the bridge lenders come back into the space. It'd be great if they did. Um, uh, a lot of bridge lenders that I've worked with, I, we do use bridge loans on, on our deals. Um, a lot of bridge lenders I've talked to are, are um, you know, just sidelined right now and they're waiting to see what happens. A few of them have lost their warehouse lines that they were getting their money yeah. from. Yeah. Um, and so they, they've like, you know, Money360 is one of them that we've done some deals with. I like Money360. They've been super easy to work with. They just lost their warehouse line. Um, so they're not, they're not closed, but it's going to be very hard to get money out of them anytime soon until they find another warehouse line, right? Um, I think that same things happen to a lot of these larger bridge lenders is the money, the place they were getting the money from is now saying, okay, we're out for a little bit. Um, so I, I don't know, Reed, but I, I think it really has to do with how quickly our country recovers from coronavirus and how quickly we're back to work um, and how quickly money starts flowing again to determine what happens next. So. And, that's, and that's so important. But here's the, <laughs> other, here's the other weird thing, you know, that is this is not America specific. This is across the entire world. Like yeah. it, is the, it is April 2nd and I was on a phone call this morning with my property managers looking at what our collections are for the month. Yeah. Uh, for, oh, sorry, what are they starting to be for April? And, mm-hmm. But rent collections in Australia, rent collections in the United Kingdom, rent collections in Canada, they're all going to be affected because everyone has been told to stay the F at home. All the world's and, sitting at home right now, yeah. brother. UK's <laughs> sitting at home. Canada's but, sitting at home. China's just now talking about going back to work if you believe what, they're t- if they, if you believe what China's telling us, they're going back to work. But you it, know? that's super yeah. – it's, it's, 
we're all at an even playing field is what I'm trying to get at. Yes. We're not, not, not one country is better than the other, mm-hmm. which is super important to when you start investing. And I want to ask you, my thesis is that you've got to be careful about how we get out of the gates. What's, what market are you in that are going to start getting shops back, restaurants back, entertainment back? You know, a lot of bloody um, sports teams are going bankrupt because they can't afford to keep the teams. You, so when are they coming back to get entertainment? But you also got to add, you know, cut, tuple, put on top of that, when are people going to have enough money to go back and start using residual income to go to sporting events, to go to music events, to go to the bar, to go to restaurants? And that's going to be the big unknown, which is mm-hmm. a little scary right now. So in your opinion, what do you think about the short term, the medium term, the long term of, of this whole thing? Um, I believe, again, this is the the, the people that I talk to um, that, that I respect. Again, um, you know, these are people like Neil Bawa, Jay Scott, those guys that, 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 um, that I think are, are really monitored at Tealy's. What, what, what I, I'm trans, I'm, I'm translating what they've told me into my interpretation of what I think sure. is going to happen. I think we're going to come out of coronavirus um, late May, right? It's supposed right. to spike middle of April. Like that, that's, that's when the, the, the top of the bell curve is supposed to happen. Now, how quickly we come back down the back of the bell curve, who knows, right? The, the, the back of the bell curve could be a very, very gradual slope and it could take a while to get us out. If, it, if we get out the qu- as quick as we got into it, then it'll be mid to late May that we'll be looking at life going back to at least a semblance of normal. Some cities coming off a lockdown, other cities going into lockdown. Because uh, if you look at the map, some cities are rampant with it, like New York and out your way, San Francisco and stuff like that. Other cities haven't really had much, you know, like the Southeast or whatever. So maybe they catch up with us, maybe not, you know. Um, and so maybe if you don't have that second wave of of, uh, of illnesses happen, then then I see well I see us having a big spike in consumption of people that are, of pent up demand of people buying homes, leasing apartments. I think we'll have a, a run for a month or two that you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. There'll be a lot of consumerism, a lot of gobbling stuff up. People not knowing what to do with all this government money they just got. Um, and big celebration, <laughs> big jubilee of being hey we're back, you know, right. Then people not realizing that the other shoe is about to drop, which is the, the long-term effects of this thing. You know, the effects that it had on our credit markets, the effects that it had on, and, and all the restaurants aren't going to open back up. You know, right. like people are going to be dancing in the streets, but they can't go out to eat anywhere. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And unemployment's still going to be north of 10% after mm-hmm. all this. After all and this. That's kind of going to be... And that's going to be the, 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 the Nike swoosh, as people are now talking. It's, it's, it's very quick, but it's going to be a longer tailwind to get these folks, particularly the low, the low income housing, which is going to be the most affected, let's be honest, by people who can't work from home, people who can't, um, you know, are still being employed over this shutdown period. Those folks trying to get them back into the workforce quickly, get them paid, get them feeling consumer confidence is back. They're going to be the big ones as well, you know, not just us who can be on Zoom and do keep business as usual. It's those, you know, the working class folks that, that, that need to get back to work quickly in order to keep the, the roof over their head and, the, and their family fed. So yeah, um, DNC, DNC class real estate. DNC class real estate, yep. exactly. Mm-hmm. Mate, at the end of every show, I know I want to be very respectful of your time because we're coming up here to being nearly on 45 minutes. Um, we get into the top Five time flies investing. when you're having fun, Reed. I know, mate. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> but let's get into top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Yes. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Mm. Oh, I love it. 
Thank you. Good question. I, uh, I, I'll hold it up. I, um, I use a sheet that says go call do. And, and this is my little notes for the day. And I carry this around every day. It's where it's all my appointments. That's my goes call or my quickie appointments, like phone calls I got to make and do is the stuff I got to do advancements towards long-term goals. I review once a week, I review my annual goal sheet. And then I take that and I plan out my week based on how can I advance my annual goals in, in this week. Then each day I look at my weekly goal sheet and talk about how can I get the stuff that I put on this goal sheet done. Um, and so the goes are the immovable assets. Those are the things that I got to do. Look, I got to do this call with Reed at four o'clock today, right? So I put that on there. Then the calls are just quickie, phone, quickie 10 to 15 minute phone calls. I got to make, just follow up on this, check in with that, call my property manager, whatever. Those are just little gap infills when I've got like five, 10 minutes of my time in a day or I like love when I'm driving somewhere, I can pick up my call list and burn through all my phone calls, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then the do's are things that I put time chunks on my calendar to say in between, in between my physical appointments, I'll, okay, I'm going to work on that application. I'm going to, you know, draft an email to my investors and let them know how we're getting through coronavirus. I'm going to record three videos, whatever. Those are my do's. Um, and that's how I, I, I really just am, am super intentional as a, in, in, in taking action in my day with, with my go call do list. Love it. I, I've never heard it called that, but go call do. I'm definitely going to incorporate. It <laughs> <laughs> it's because I've made it up, brother. <laughs> hey, mate, you got it. You got, that's a book number four coming out. I can, I know, I can already okay. see it. Mate, uh, who's been the most influential person in your career to date? Um, hmm. Lot, man. Jeez. Uh, I'd have to say my wife, you know, because yes, um, yes. she Liz, planted Liz the seed and got me going. And um, there's been a lot of little uh, of just advocates and people and believers that have kept me going. Um, people that have changed my mindset, like Joe Fairless, um, who's become a good friend, has really just got me to think bigger and got me to think um, about what was possible for me. Um, and that's I'll, I'll probably name the two of them. Awesome, awesome, love yeah. it. Question number three, what is the most influential tool in your real estate business? And when I say tool, it could be a physical tool like a phone or it could be a software tool like uh, online like Zoom or uh, Slack. What's the most influential tool in your daily business? Today is, um, I probably would say Slack. You, know, you mentioned it. Um, Slack's been great. Zoom has been great. We also use a software called Podio for handling investor inter interface. Um, and that, so those tools have been good. What Slack does, for those of you guys that don't know about Slack, I know you do it apparently since you mentioned it, but what Slack does is it takes important conversations you may need to have with your team and puts them in certain buckets and it takes them outside the noise of email. Because what we were finding is, this is what we started using Slack because we found as a team that, you know, we, our response time was way too long to each other on important matters. And we were having to just call each other. It's like, hey, man, did you see that email I sent you yesterday? I need, I need an answer on this email. But unfortunately, we're just inundated with email. And then you could literally just like sit down at your desk and answer email all day if you want to do that for your job. You really could. Because um, we've all got email just piled up. Uh, what Slack does is it allows you to take conversations that are more important than what's in your inbox and it compartmentalizes them over here in an app and you can attach things to it and put pictures into it and even reference emails in Slack and stuff like that. So it enables you to have a private conversation and put things above the noise that you need to, that you need to be there. Yeah, I completely so. agree. Slack is super important in my 
day-to-day business. Um, it just, as you said, separates the noise from the to-do lists really and, and what's most important in those conversations. So yeah. so really, really important. Mate, question number four. In one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career and what did you learn from that failure? Oof. Um, hmm. I've had, a, I've, had a, I've had a bunch. I've learned a lot from my failures. Um, I would say... The biggest failure that I had in the beginning was going into, just I'll say that in one sense, going in too many directions at once. Going too many, yeah. Not living in my core genius, you know, not living, just doing what I'm great at. Just that. Yep. Love it. Love it. Mate, final question. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? A couple of different ways. Uh, they can just pick up their handy dandy cell phone. Um, and I'm so awesome. I'm so proud of this like text. I, I, I got all techie in my, in my old age read. I got this tech. I got this tech going on now. They can just pick up their cell phone and text the word DeRosa, my company name, D-E-R-O-S-A, DeRosa. Text the word DeRosa to 66866. You'll get a ton of stuff going on, including like if you're listening to this currently, uh, all the Corona, Corona documents and um, and what our property manager is doing about Corona crazy. That's all there. Um, including lots of presentations that I've done for free, uh, videos you can't get anywhere else, videos you can't get on my YouTube page. Those are all there. So text the word DeRosa, D-E-R-O-S-A to 6686. And you also get an option to join my, my, um, private group called DeRosa Insiders. All my investors are a part of it. And you also get to, um, you get to kind of rub elbows with my investors and my entire team where we talk about the inside inner workings of DeRosa Group. Um, and you can join that for a dollar for the first month. Um, so you just do that by texting DeRosa to 6686. Or you can just learn a little bit more about us by going on my website at DeRosaGroup.com. That's D-E-R-O-S-A group, G-R-O-U-P.com. Well, mate, I want to thank you so much for jumping on today's show. I've really enjoyed the conversation we've had. And I think the, the, the number, a couple of number one things that I've taken away from the conversation is how important your spouse is. Clearly, Liz has been an absolute rock in your career and you wouldn't be here without us. So, so well done, Liz. Um, but also just understanding how important it is to take, it takes a good partner to build uh, something long that's worthwhile, but also understanding that the, the, the ins and outs of raising capital and what you're seeing for the future in coronavirus. I think we covered some extremely important topics here as we're all gearing up for corona and how we're going to come out of it and how we're going to start continue to raise money, how we're going to go find more deals, try to get lenders involved. Um, so I'm sure a lot of people are going to be re- rewinding this, uh, this episode and listening back. Uh, but did I leave anything out? No, man, this has been great. This has been great. I, um, I really enjoyed our conversation and, and um, I, I hope we get to do this again soon. Mate, so do I. Well, thank you again so much for, enjoy, uh, for jumping on the show. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. You too, Reed. Well, there you have it. Another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Matt. And if you want any, if you want to be in his sphere, get over to derosagroup.com. Matt has a ton of information on on there, on his website, but also on his YouTube channel. Definitely subscribe to that. Um, I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave. And remember, go give life a crack.